This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I think that I am not deceived in supposing that a sincere and general desire exists in this country to live in harmony and friendship with us. The disposition is, however, infettered and enfeebled by prejudices and opinions connected with the national commerce and marine, which make the government slow and cautious in every step which has a reference to these important concerns. This assessment of the British side of U.S.-British relations comes to us from U.S. Minister to Britain Rufus King, written to outgoing President Washington on February 6, 1797. It is not likely that Washington received this message prior to his return to Mount Vernon, but I thought it an appropriate quote to begin this examination of the international scene upon John Adams taking office. Welcome, dear listener, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. First, I'd like to thank Ben Jacobs for providing this episode's intro quote. Ben is the host of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, which provides great insight into the early modern period in European history and will be helpful for anyone wishing to understand the trends and revolutions and ideas that ultimately contributed to the American Revolution. It's available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. I'll provide a link on the show notes for this episode, or you can search for Wittenberg, B-E-R-G at the end, to West P-H-A-L-I-A. Though much time has been spent in our narrative talking about British-American relations, we really haven't talked much about the situation in Britain. For that, let's start at the top of the government. Besides the king, the most powerful person in Britain at the time was the Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger. Why was he William Pitt the Younger, you ask? Well, mostly to differentiate him from his father, William Pitt the Elder, also known as the first Earl of Chatham, who had been Prime Minister in the mid to late 1760s. However, it also provides a good opening to discuss how this man at age 24, after a bitter struggle with Lord North, ended up becoming the youngest Prime Minister in British history in 1783, a record that he still holds to this date, 2018 as of this recording. By the time John Adams assumed the presidency in 1797, Pitt the Younger was still Prime Minister of Great Britain. That's right, he had outlasted the Confederation government and Washington's administration. That is not to say that Pitt hadn't had his struggles, both internal and informal relations. As we've discussed previously, Britain had been at war with revolutionary France for nearly five years by 1797. And as that year progressed, they would find themselves the only European power still against France, as Austria ended the first coalition by concluding a peace with France in April. In some ways, though, that wasn't even the worst of the British government's problems. The domestic strife between supporters and detractors of the French Revolution that had been seen in the United States during the 1790s had been mirrored in Britain, and that nation found itself much closer to the scene of the action. French immigrants had fled across the Channel to take refuge in the British Isles as one faction after another took charge in France. 
Pitt's government, however, began to wonder if revolutionary agents would seek to take advantage of the situation in order to destabilize Britain. And they received what they felt was reliable proof from agents embedded in the emigre community in the fall of 1792 that a plot of that sort was being hatched. After the British declaration of war against France, the tension continued to build. By 1795, the situation was so unsettled that a mob attacked King George III's carriage, and Pitt speculated that, quote, my head would be off in six months were I to resign. The feared domestic threat ultimately gave way to a very real threat from abroad. At the end of December 1796, the French had attempted what would prove to be a failed invasion of Ireland in order to open up a new front against the British. While unsuccessful, that did put people in the British Isles on edge. And in mid-February, quote, Farmers in Northumberland descended on Newcastle demanding their money, and on the 20th, two banks closed their doors. The run-on banks continued through the English countryside, and calls went out to the Bank of England for them to provide coin to these banks to meet their needs. Meanwhile, French troops that were supposed to be a part of the invasion plans, but who hadn't gotten word that the first phase of it had failed, landed at Fishguard Bay in Pembrokeshire, and when word arrived in London of this landing on the 25th, the panic ratcheted up a few more degrees. Pitt and his cabinet met over the weekend, and after consulting with the king, decided to issue an order in council directing the Bank of England to suspend specie payments when it opened on Monday the 27th. This emergency act to suspend specie payments by the Bank of England would ultimately be approved and made into official policy by Parliament, and the suspension of the redemption of banknotes into gold will remain in place until 1821. While this action would stabilize the immediate crisis, it would have a long-term effect that would be felt far beyond the borders of Britain. As noted by Pitt biographer John Ehrman, quote, Credit did not revive so fast everywhere, and banks' deposits suffered in the provinces. Nor did government funds recover their earlier levels for the rest of the year. It would be the credit constriction that would have the largest effect on the United States, since, as noted by historian Richard S. Chu, quote, American merchants trading with Europe relied on overseas credit arrangements to sustain their trade and uphold their fortunes. So the suspension dealt a crippling blow to their commercial activities. So the suspension dealt a crippling blow to their commercial activities. As the merchants on the eastern seaboard would not learn of the issues in Britain for a few months, we shall come back to that in a future episode. But just know that troubles were brewing with the United States' largest trading partner. A financial crisis was the last thing that Britain needed when it was still in the midst of war with France. But luckily for them, their enemies on the mainland were dealing with issues of their own. Across the La Manche, or as it is known on the British Isles, the English Channel, the government under the Directory was drumming along in France. The Constitution of 1795 had been approved as we discussed in episode 1.29, and the new directors had taken office just in time to deal with precarious economic circumstances. The harvest of 1795 had been quite poor, and the British blockade continued to disrupt shipments of food from overseas, while the armies in the field consumed what little provisions there were to be found in France. Around the same time that inflation was creeping up, the value of the French currency collapsed. The initial response by the Directory was to print more notes, but they finally figured out in February 1796 that this was only making things worse, 
and ordered the printing of new currency halted, with 34 billion livres worth of promissory notes in circulation. To stabilize the economy, the directory issued new quote-unquote territorial mandates to replace the previous notes at a rate of 30 to 1, with the new mandates redeemable in national lands. Thus, as often happens in periods of economic distress, speculators were able to take advantage of the situation and make a grab on land that could then be resold for a profit at a higher cost. Plus ça change. Anyway, 1796 would see the Directory attempt to consolidate power by cracking down on Jacobins who had come back out from the shadows under the new regime. As mentioned in episode 1.35, that same year would see a young general by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte appointed as commander of the Army of Italy. And after a few months of campaigning, he would drive out Austrian forces and find himself in control of a large part of northern Italy. He forced favorable terms from the King of Sardinia, the government of Naples, and even the Pope himself. One important Austrian stronghold remained in Lombardy, Mantua. Napoleon had ordered a siege of the city in July 1796, but New Year's 1797 found the Austrian garrison still in Mantua and the city still under siege. However, the garrison could only last so long without relief, and the Austrians tried and failed numerous times to relieve the garrison. In mid-January, the Austrians made one last try, but were thwarted by Napoleon and his forces in the Battle of Rivoli. With that victory, the situation in Mantua became untenable and the Austrian garrison surrendered on February 2nd. Thus, by the time John Adams was taking his oath of office on the other side of the world, Napoleon was driving his army towards Vienna. As I've said before, I can only cover this period of European history in broad strokes, but if you'd like to learn more about these latter days of what is typically considered part of the French Revolution, I highly recommend Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, which covers the French Revolution extensively, leading up to the ascendancy of General Napoleon. Believe you me, he is a man on the move. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, though, it is time to introduce a man about whom we are going to be talking a great deal about in this series, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigot, or as we shall refer to him henceforth, Talleyrand, which I think you'll agree is much easier to say than Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigot every time I refer to him. Anyway, Talleyrand had been born to a noble French family during the days of the Ancien Regime and had been forced by his parents into the priesthood as a physical impairment in the form of a self-described quote-unquote lame foot made army service out of the question. Talleyrand, however, was quite ill-suited for the priesthood, and the convening of the Estates General in May 1789 provided Talleyrand, by that point the Bishop of Autun, with an opportunity to move into a new role in society. He would make the first of his opportunistic shifts of loyalty as he surveyed the political situation, saw the cause of the monarchy to be lost, and, along with a few of his fellow bishops, joined with members of the Third Estate and a handful of nobles to form the National Assembly, which would in short order supplant the Estates General. 
He would break his bonds with the Vatican in 1790 when he swore an oath to the nation of France over the authority of the Pope as required in the law of the civil constitution of the clergy. Any clergy who refused to take the oath were to be replaced by others who would be more supportive to the revolutionary ideals, while clergy like Talleyrand, who did take the oath, were excommunicated by the Pope. Talleyrand would be offered the position of Archbishop of Paris as part of this new constitutionalist configuration of the clergy, but would decline the post, preferring to remain as a non-ecclesiastic citizen. In 1792, he began his second career as a diplomat when he was given the task of traveling to London on two separate missions to attempt to convince the British government to remain neutral at the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars. Though Britain would ultimately join the war on the side of the First Coalition, as noted by Talleyrand biographer Anna Bauman Dodd, quote, These missions to England were, in truth, the beginning of Talleyrand's diplomatic life. His skill at negotiating difficult affairs of state his tact, his mastery of adroit and insinuating persuasiveness, his subtlety, and the finished delicacy of a manner which impressed those hostile to Talleyrand the man. This almost unique equipment marked him for his future illustrious vocation. However, this vocation would be derailed in the latter part of 1792 as the revolution progressed and the domestic political waters shifted. Talleyrand was ultimately targeted and fled for London as what would come to be known as the September Massacres began. Anyone with noble connections was suspect, and many would meet their end at this point. But Talleyrand would prove to be a survivor with an instinct on how to react to changes in the political landscape. His exile to Britain would be ended in early 1794 when he was forced to leave the country by order of the British government, and he would make his way to the United States where he could observe the result of a previous revolution firsthand. During his time in the U.S., Talleyrand made the acquaintance of various noted figures including Alexander Hamilton and made his way through New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston. He would describe his impressions of the American sentiment in a letter on February 1, 1795, as follows, quote, The attitude of America proves une forte inclination pour la nation française, or a strong inclination for the French nation, that all Americans still talk with enthusiasm of those generous brothers in arms who crossed the Atlantic to fight with them in favor of liberty. Yet, in spite of the fact that the very name of England is mentioned with aversion, America is entirely English. That is to say that to England belongs all the advantage over France that one country can derive from another country. This preference rests on the two causes which alone can produce such a desire, inclination and interest. Dear listener, I urge you to have this impression in mind as we go on. Honestly, it is a very astute assessment of the situation that I haven't even found in writings from contemporary Americans. Though their hearts may be with France and the lofty ideals of the revolution, business was business, and Britain was the better, more stable business partner. As for Talleyrand, with the news of the fall of Robespierre and the Jacobins, he started contemplating a return to France. Finally, in the latter part of 1796, the 42-year-old Talleyrand was able to return back to Paris. As the government of the Directory settled into the task of governing France, Talleyrand settled himself into the task of acquiring a position of importance and power in the new governing structure. He had his eye on becoming Minister of Foreign Affairs and was ready and willing to put all of his skills of cunning and guile to use in order to get the position. We shall leave Citizen Talleyrand there for the moment and shift gears. 
While the government in France was reorganizing and refocusing, thousands of miles away, changes were afoot as well in what had been France's most lucrative colony, Saint-Domingue. It's been since episode 1.25 since we checked in on Saint-Domingue, so let me briefly set the scene for where we last left that colony. Members of the Revolutionary Commission sent from France to regain control over the colony had declared those enslaved on the island to be free in August 1793 with the caveat that there were limits on their freedom, i.e. they couldn't leave the plantations that they had been enslaved on and would have to keep working there as paid laborers. The move had been made to win the loyalty of black armies who had been supported by the Spanish, and after being endorsed by the French National Convention, which abolished slavery in all French colonies in February 1794, it succeeded. In April 1794, one of the key generals in the black armies, Toussaint L'Ouverture, renounced Spanish support and pledged his forces' support for the French Republic. Meanwhile, the British had begun an invasion of the island in late 1793 and had already claimed the ports of Jeremy and Mont Saint-Nicolas. Before we go on, I would like to note that I cannot cover the entirety of events in what we now know of as the Haitian Revolution, as that is beyond the scope of this podcast. My intent is to hit on certain key points that will relate to the progress of the Adams presidency. However, should this interest you to learn more about the Haitian Revolution, I highly recommend Mike Duncan's series on his Revolutions podcast as a very enlightening look at a revolution that does not receive nearly as much attention as others, such as the French and American revolutions. That being said, 1794 found the future of a French-controlled Saint-Domingue in increasingly dire straits. Despite Toussaint's defection, the British continued to press forward with their attempts to gain full control of Saint-Domingue, with British troops forcing the surrender of Port-au-Prince, while the Spanish continued to provide support from Santo Domingo, their half of the island of Hispaniola, to forces occupying most of central Saint-Domingue in opposition to French rule. Despite their best efforts, though, the British could not make much headway in Saint-Domingue as their soldiers fell victim to tropical diseases, and the Spanish would be removed from the equation as... In July 1795, they signed a peace treaty with France in which they ceded Santo Domingo to France. With the Spanish departure from Hispaniola, the British remained the only external threat to French authority. Internally, though, a threat to continued French rule was forming. French authorities in the colony were becoming increasingly reliant on black commanders like Toussaint and his equivalent in the southern part of Saint-Domingue, André Bergot. It was Toussaint who had taken on the Spanish and their allies in the north. Then he and Rigaud had teamed up to force the British back to captured port cities in the south and west. Toussaint and Rigaud were the ones ensuring that violent uprisings by plantation laborers seeking their unconditional freedom were quashed. When a coup was staged against the French military commander General Laveau in Le Cap in March 1796, it was again Toussaint who came to the rescue. In return for his support, Laveau named Toussaint as Lieutenant Governor of Saint-Domingue. However, at this point, the blacks of Saint-Domingue had been the pawns manipulated by the French, the British, and the Spanish for years. Sometimes the promises made to get their support were kept. At other times, they found themselves betrayed. Little wonder, then, that around the time of Adams's inauguration, Toussaint began to consider the future and who would be best to govern the colony in order to ensure that slavery was never restored to Saint-Domingue. Meanwhile, the immigration of refugees from Saint-Domingue fleeing from the turmoil was changing the landscape of the United States. 
being the nearest source of refuge. By 1797, the French consul in Philadelphia estimated that over 20,000 French refugees were present in the U.S., and that nearly all of them had come from Saint-Domingue or other French colonies in the Caribbean region, which were also experiencing British attacks and, in some cases, slave uprisings. Refugees, however, were not the only way that the U.S. was being impacted by foreign affairs. As mentioned in episode 1.33, the French government's official representative in the U.S. had hired General Victor Collot to travel west of the Appalachians to identify possible pro-French secessionist conspirators to launch a rebellion against the U.S. government in the West. The French, however, were not the only ones engaged in this. As we've seen in various episodes, most recently episode 1.24, Spanish officials had long been in communication with individuals and groups in the western U.S. and promoting plots of secession, even going so far as to have cultivated a secret agent who was highly placed in the U.S. government, General James Wilkinson, who had risen to become the head of the U.S. Army by the time Adams took office. We've discussed Wilkinson before and how his ambition and avarice had driven him to declare his loyalty to the Spanish monarch. With his ascension to the head of the U.S. Army after the death of General Anthony Wayne, it seems like Wilkinson had a change of heart and was ready to restore his full loyalty to the United States. Though the Spanish position was not as strong as it had been following the Treaty of San Lorenzo, or as it's better known, Pinckney's Treaty, and the agreement to settle the southwest boundary of the 31st parallel, the Spanish still thought that they might be able to put pressure on Wilkinson to retain their now highly valuable agent. Likewise, the British had their own agents in the West, though their schemes were more targeted towards Native Americans in the area. The British government had long wanted the West established as a buffer state for Native Americans, which would halt American westward expansion. All three European powers saw the situation, as some leaders in the United States did, and identified the West as key to the growth of American power and influence, and they wanted to do everything they could to thwart it, lest America's rise diminish their own power. Indeed, there was some justification for their fears, as we'll see when we get to Francisco de Miranda. That name may sound familiar to some of you, but for the rest, you'll just have to wait and see, as we're not ready for Senor Miranda just yet. The key takeaway from this episode is that the fates of Britain, France, Spain, Saint-Domingue, and the United States found themselves intertwined as John Adams assumed office. Before we part, I'd just like to briefly mention that, for Adams, there was a more personal entanglement happening abroad that was waiting in the wings for him. As was mentioned in previous episodes in this series, Adams' son, John Quincy, had been serving as a U.S. diplomat abroad. John Quincy had had occasion to travel to London on business, and it was during one of these trips that he visited the home of the U.S. Consul General, Joshua Johnson, and met his family. Of particular interest to him was the Consul General's daughters and over time, John Quincy's affection centered on Louisa Catherine Johnson. Though American by nationality, Louisa had been born in London and had never visited her home country. As John Quincy had been named as U.S. Minister to Prussia at the end of the Washington presidency, he and Louisa would have to make some choices about their future. It had been easy for John Quincy to travel between London and his diplomatic posting in The Hague. His posting in Berlin, however, would be a much longer haul. Either it was time to move on, or it was time to move towards the wedding aisle. Spoiler alert, John Quincy won't be going to Berlin alone, and he'd have to break the news to his parents that he had decided to marry someone they had never met. We'll come back to the romantic drama in future episodes, 
But next time, we'll see how the new president begins to address the French situation in an episode I'd like to call Etou France. Until then, special thanks again to Ben Jacobs for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out his podcast, Wittenberg to Westphalia, by going to the source notes for this episode or doing a search for anywhere fine podcasts can be found. For source notes to this episode, as well as to catch up on past episodes, check out the website at presidencies.blueberry. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Past episodes can also be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Podchaser, or anywhere else fine podcasts can be found. If you have any questions or comments, I can always be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care, dear friends. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.